Good morning, Sun Valley. So thankful that we can gather together and, and join in the praise and exaltation of God and uh, hear words of encouragement and hope as we uh, now dig into his word and, and uh, seek what, what he has for us here. You cannot help just having sat through what you've sat through in the last half hour to miss the point of Scripture, which is God is personal. I mean, just what was read from Psalm 116 makes that abundantly clear. That's one of the, the important doctrines of the Christian faith. We, we worship a personal God. He's not distant. He's not obscure, unknowable, or impersonal. He is a known personal being that desires to be in our presence and us in his. He desires to be with us. He loves us. He desires our fellowship, communion, and friendship with us. This is made clear all throughout Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, for example, right at the very beginning, God was with Adam and Eve personally, befriending them, walking and talking with them in the garden daily. Then after sin entered in the world, this personal relationship uh, took a hit, but remained a priority for God. And so, as was his plan, he established means by which he could continue to pursue a deepening and personal relationship with his people. This, this is what God has always desired. We read of the means that God established in the Old Testament and in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, if you remember, where God told Moses to erect a tabernacle wherein he could meet with his people, commune with his people, fellowship and interact with his people. And it was in that tabernacle where sinful people could actually encounter and interact with a holy God, as impossible as that sounds. All throughout the Old Testament, God faithfully pursued his people, drawing them to himself, forgiving their rebellion, forgiving their sin. Even when he was ignored by his people, he continued to pursue them because he's a personal God who loves his people. Then 2,000 years ago, God himself became man. Why? Because he loves his people, because he wants to be with us. In John chapter 1, we read that he tabernacled with man. That's the word that the apostle John used when he wrote the word, that is, God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is literally translated tabernacled for obvious reasons. It's a place of connection with the Almighty. It's the person of God himself wanting to be with his people. And when Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, came and continued that personal interaction between God and man, between us and our Creator. God wants to be with us because He's personal and He loves us, He cares about us. And this, of course, leads us to our text today that further affirms God's personal interest in each of us. He speaks to us through his word, by his spirit, and then we, of course, respond in prayer. 
This is that fellowship, that interaction, that communion that we find in Scripture and that I'm talking about. We discover in the Bible, like here in Psalm 119, that, that God desires us to pray. He desires us to make that a daily practice, to bring our requests, bring our sorrows, concerns, those things that weigh us down to him because he desires to bless us, befriend us, and help us. He desires to help us navigate the challenges of life that we face. And so this morning, I don't want you to stand outside wondering if you're welcome or wanted in the presence of God. I want you to draw near with me, to speak, to listen, to participate, to fellowship, to commune with this personal God with which we have much to do. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 119, and I'm going to read for you the Resh stanza, verses 153 through 160. Psalm 119, starting in verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So I want to unpack these verses today in, in view of the, the subject of prayer, which what this is. It is a prayer to God requesting his assistance, his help, his encouragement. And our first point, if you'll see it in your bulletin, is this, that God answers our prayers. We can get this from what I just read to you. As we begin to work our way through this stance, I want you to notice that each of these prayers for spiritual vitality, where he says, give me life, give me life, give me life, in three different places, each of those prayers are connected to some aspect of God's nature. My point is that all parts of our spiritual life are directly connected to and dependent on God being personal. Our relationship with God doesn't work unless he's personal. It is useless, powerless, pointless, unless God is a personal God. And I want to show that to you today. First of all, by showing you that God answers prayers. Although this stanza has many important things that we could dive into and study and discuss and be of great value, the primary emphasis here is teaching us to earnestly plead with God in prayer, for help, for hope, for spiritual strength, for spiritual vitality. And of course, this is based on a personal relationship with a God who cares. We can come to him because he cares, because he's approachable. As we stand back here and observe these eight verses, we can learn some things about God and how much he values our prayer and sees our prayer as an expression of our belief that a personal relationship with this God of all creation is possible and being pursued by those of us who are praying. God is personal, and he answers prayer. 
for the following three reasons found in this text. In verses 153 and 154, because he knows every detail of our circumstances. Look on my affliction, plead my cause, the psalmist prays. Why would he pray that? Well, the reason the author is praying to God is because he believes that God hears and answers prayer. This is our conviction also, isn't it? Isn't this why we come to God? Because we believe he is and that he is personal, personal and that he answers prayer? Of course we do. When we come to God in prayer, a fundamental belief that we hold is that God hears our prayers, cares about our circumstances, and can do something about them. Hence, we pray. God sees our affliction. Verse 153, look on my affliction. He prays that because God is able to. God knows the details of our affliction because he's God. He knows everything about the cause to plead. If you see that in verse 154, why? Because he's the author of that cause. He's omniscient, which means he knows everything. He is never surprised by what we encounter, no matter how bizarre. He's never caught off guard with something that concerns us because he's God. He knows our needs. He sees our affliction. You know, our objective may be to sidestep our difficulties, but God's objective is usually different than that, isn't it? Prayer connects us to God's objectives. When you come to prayer over difficult circumstances, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ that he modeled. What was his model? He said, not my will, but yours be done. That's how Jesus prayed. And our prayers should reflect that, always being submissive to the will of God in all things, not selfishly demanding our own way and saying, well, you did this for that person, why won't you do it for me? And no, it's to submit ourselves to the will of a loving, personal God. And in a moment, you'll discover why we do that. So our prayers can be prayed in such a way as to let God know that we're hurting, that we need relief, but at the same time, understanding and embracing the idea that he accomplishes his purposes, his objectives in our lives through the things we're suffering, through the things that are challenging us in this life. When it seems that God is intent on prolonging our suffering or pain or sorrow, whatever you're experiencing, you can be sure he isn't doing so from an impersonal, insensitive, ignorant position. We know that he knows exactly what we're going through because he's walked in our shoes. Remember Hebrews 4.15? For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, God not only knows your circumstances and your afflictions because he's omniscient, he knows those things because he's walked in your shoes. He's been there. God answers prayer because he knows our circumstances. Secondly, in verses 155, 157, and 158, God answers prayer because he's intent on saving his people. God answers your prayer because he's intent on saving you. What, what do I mean? Well, God has revealed himself and his salvation in his word to his people. We, we have the scriptures made known to us, made clear to us by the Holy Spirit. This is an undeniable act of grace and mercy. So why are you in this room this morning? What brought you here? Why do you care to hear 
from God's word this morning. I'll tell you why. It's because of God's favor on you. That's why. There's many who aren't here and who aren't in any church this morning. Why? Acts, 4, Acts 13, 48 says, all who were appointed unto eternal life believed. The reason you're here is because God has had favor on you. You've been appointed to eternal life. That's why you're here. Now, let's tie this to prayer. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in each of our souls who know Christ, has drawn us into a relationship with himself, has regenerated us spiritually dead people and made us alive, made us new. He has determined to save us, and in saving us, he intends to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose in all of life. This, of course, is a striking contrast to what these verses say in verses 155, 157, and 158. There's a, there's a, a stark contrast between the unsaved and the saved here in these verses, between those who seek God and his statutes and those who don't. God has set his love on those he has chosen to save and those he's chosen to transform. Follow me. God in Jesus Christ pleads the cause of the elect. That's the prayer of verse 154, plead my cause. He predestined their salvation. This is God in Jesus Christ pleads the cause of the elect by predestining their salvation, praying for their salvation in John 17, which is recorded, and dying for their salvation. Now he applies that salvation to our lives on a daily basis, which brings about change in each of us. The salvation, the salvation of God's people goes beyond the forgiveness of sin, not minimizing the forgiveness of sin because it's one of the best parts of our salvation, right? <laughs> the forgiveness of sin. But God's salvation goes beyond the forgiveness of sin. God's salvation is comprehensive in its objectives in the lives of his people. So God's salvation in your experience goes beyond saving you from your sin, goes beyond forgiving your sin, goes beyond getting you to heaven to something much broader. Let me explain it to you. Salvation began when? Not when you prayed the prayer. Salvation began in eternity past by God's loving election. It was applied, that is, salvation was applied at the moment of regeneration, resulting in your conversion. And it, that's, that same salvation works its way out and throughout the daily physical lives of believers, which the Bible calls sanctification or transformation, becoming like Jesus. And then one day, this salvation, speaking of the comprehensive nature of salvation, is consummated or will be consummated in our future lives of glory with him forever. That is salvation. That is a picture of salvation from beginning to end. Of course, there is no end. But prayer, and here's my point, taken from those three verses, prayer plays a major role in all of it. Every part of that comprehensive salvation, prayer plays a critical role. From those who prayed for your salvation, Grandma Smith prayed for your salvation, 
And before Grandma Smith, who prayed for your salvation, John 17 records it, Jesus himself prayed for your salvation. So prayer has played an important role or important part in your salvation, your election, your regeneration has come about by means of prayer. Your grandmas, your moms, your neighbor, and Jesus himself. What an amazing truth. Can you see what God's doing here for us in this text? Does the transformation of your saved spouse, your saved children, your fellow SVCers encourage you? It should because you've been part of that transformation by your prayers. When you pray for the encouragement of someone who's hurting, when you pray for some child to come back to faith, when you pray for someone to get a job, to get healthy, you're participating in the transformation process that God is taking that person for whom you're praying through. You're part of it. I'm part of it. The wicked, on the other hand, <laughs> are not only not saved, according to verse 155, but they make a practice of confirming that by their disobedience. You see that in verse 155? Salvation is far from the wicked. Why? Because they don't seek your statutes. They could care less about God. They have no peace, no hope, according to verses 157 and 158 other than the cheap substitutes that the world might offer and they grab onto, they have no hope, no peace, have no relationship with God. And we see this same truth come up again in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter two. This is what Paul told them. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Before you knew Jesus, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now listen, those who are in that boat the unsaved, have no hope and without God in this world. They, they may have some superficial distracting moment or two because they've got a new boat, but they have no hope, no peace, no real satisfaction and fulfillment. And here's the difference. God is actively engaged in our lives to bring about his purposes as we join him in that activity when we pray unlike the unsaved. You see the contrast. God answers prayer because he is intent on saving his people. And salvation includes your transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. So keep praying for your kids. Keep praying for your neighbors. Keep praying for your spouse. Because God uses those prayers to bring about his objectives. He answers prayer because he's intent on saving his people. Thirdly, let's focus in on verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. <clears throat> God answers prayer because God is a God of mercy. Filed right in the middle of his thoughts about salvation, 
for those who do and those who don't possess it. In verse 156, the psalmist inserts the idea of mercy. Do you think that's by chance? <laughs> of course you know the answer. Of course not. He inserts the idea of mercy in the context of salvation because that's why we're saved. Whenever we think about God's favor on us, it is good to remember that it is because of his mercy that he is good to us. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 33, remember that? He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over it, and he asked God, what, does, what do you call yourself? May I see your face? And all these questions, Moses. What did God call himself? What did he tell Moses his name was in Exodus 33? Mercy. That's how he revealed himself to Moses. When asked, who are you? Tell me about yourself. He said, I am a God of mercy. Isn't that wonderful? In verse 155 of Psalm 119, we see that that, that isn't the case with everyone. Salvation is far from the wicked. He wrote this to, to help us see how it is a part of our experience as believers. In the unbelief of the unsaved and the disobedience of the unsaved, they, they run away. Do you see that? They, they swerve from his rules. They, they're faithless in following God, who would in fact extend mercy to them and grace to them if they would just but turn and come. He's a merciful God. His name is mercy. The only difference between the wicked of verse 155 and the grace and mercy of God demonstrated to us in verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord, is significant yet minor. It's not that, that we are more lovable, more important, or more, more qualified, or better in any way than the wicked. Not at all. If you think so, you don't understand grace and mercy. The grace and mercy of God towards us is the only difference in the equation. The reason you've been saved, the reason you've been called into a relationship with God, the reason that you're called to pray is because of God's mercy. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Christian friend, your relationship with God is based on a gift of mercy. Let's think about mercy for a minute. What we see here in verse 156 is important in understanding mercy. He says, great is your mercy. Let's look at the quality of that mercy. What kind of mercy is it? Well, it's a tender mercy. In the original language, the Hebrew language, it's described as welling up from within God. And in fact, some translations rightly translate it, the bowels of mercy. The mercy of God comes from his bowels, from deep within him. It's part of his character. It's what makes him tick. He is a merciful God. That is the quality of it. This is why we plead and cry out to God, because 
He is empathetic, merciful, who cares about us and our circumstances from the depths of his bowels. It is true of him. You remember Hannah pleading for a son, basing her pleadings on the mercy of God. The Syphophoenician woman in the New Testament desperately crying out to God for mercy to save her demon-possessed daughter. The father of a demon-possessed boy pleaded with Jesus for mercy. Blind Bartimaeus cried out on the side of the road to Jericho, son of David, have mercy on me. The leper pleaded with Jesus by the same means, upon the same foundation, the mercy of God. See me in my afflictions, have mercy. Mercy is what God loves to grant because it's in his character is what his name is. My name is Mercy. How about the quantity of mercy? That we've seen the quality. Now how about the quantity of mercy? What's it say in verse 156? Great. That's the quantity. There's a lot to go around. He's not going to run out when he comes to you. In fact, some translations say many are your mercies. The ESV says great. God's mercy is great and sufficient for every need. So let's think for a moment. In what ways is God's mercy great? Well, let's get personal. Consider the debt that you owe to an infinite God. Our sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And yet he has mercy. Consider the judgment from which his mercy saves us. An eternal separation from God, an eternal separation from God, and yet he has mercy. Consider the bliss, the joy, and satisfaction promised to all who are and are being saved because of his mercy. Great is his mercy. We can trace the origins of God's mercy to eternity past when God determined to save sinful rebellious, undeserving people in order to exalt his glorious grace. God is seen to be that much greater when he extends mercy to people who don't deserve it. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this very thing. Verses 4 through 6. Even as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before anything was in existence, save God himself, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is why he has extended mercy to you, because it makes much of Jesus. You see, the greatness of God's mercy towards us is an overwhelming and sure ground of his interest in our circumstances, of his commitment to hearing our prayers and responding as a father who loves us would. The one who has gone to such great lengths to accomplish all of his loving purposes in human history will certainly pay attention to his loved one's needs. His, his mercy encompasses us surrounds us in every experience. 
His mercy abounds to us in every moment in order to hold us fast, to restore us after we fall, to build us up and guarantee to bring about God's loving plan in each of our lives. Because he is merciful. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Is that not a merciful, personal God? Now, of course, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, then why don't my prayers get answered? If all this is true, that God is personal, God loves me, he's merciful, all this stuff that you're saying, Pastor John, is true, how come I have so many outstanding prayer requests in my journal? Good question. Let's talk about that, which is our second point. God answers. God's answers are always for our good. We could stop there, but I'll explain it. Let me read some verses that may have confused you or you struggled with in the past. John 14, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, I finished my prayer with in Jesus' name, amen, so why am I not getting what I'm asking for? I said in Jesus' name, I said exactly what Jesus said. I got his words memorized. Well, then this other verse comes along in Romans 8. Paul says in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. <laughs> these verses, of course, can be easily misunderstood. They've been misunderstood for centuries. How are my present circumstances good? You might disagree with that, right? With Paul and with Jesus, for that matter. You know, you've prayed like Jesus has said to pray in his name. You've prayed for relief. You've prayed for change. But still, no change, no relief, no good. These kind of thoughts and experiences can cause someone to start thinking that all of this talk about God's personal life or personal connection to us cares about our life, circumstances, and so forth. And answers to my prayers is hogwash. It sounds good, and it's things Christians ought to say and believe, but it isn't true at least in my case, right? Well, let me try to explain these verses, these promises, really, from God in the book of John and the book of Romans. In John's passage, I want you to look a little more closely at what Jesus said. <clears throat> I don't know if it's back up on the overhead. Hopefully it is. John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Now read the next phrase that the Father may be glorified in the Son. To pray in Jesus' name isn't a secret phrase that you tag onto your prayers to make sure it happens. No, to pray in Jesus' name was saying, I want to submit my will to your will. I want to do what, I want my life to be about whatever will bring you glory, God. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. God intends to glorify the Son and the Son is glorified by bringing transformed people to glory. That's what glorifies Jesus when our Savior actually saves. That's what brings him glory. Not when you get your car or your raise or your girlfriend. <laughs> I hope you see the difference. 
Jesus is transforming us one day at a time, one trial at a time, until we come like him. So when he presents us to the Father, he is glorified. Look at these saved ones. This is also the meaning of Romans 8, 28. And by the way, context here is really important, isn't it? Let's, let's tag on verse 29 just to make sure we understand what he's saying in verse 28. Everything we go through, the all things of verse 28, work for the good of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. If our prayers agree with that, if, if our prayers are, are prayed in Jesus' name to glorify the Son, then it'll happen. If it's about glorifying you or spending it on your pleasures, it won't happen. Romans 8, 28 is one verse before Romans 8, 29. Crazy thing, intentionally. <laughs> Look at verse, these verses together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he, for that same for those, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what we're going through is about conforming us to the image of his son. And when we pray in line with that, he does it every time. So back to Psalm 119 in verse 153. Look on my affliction. What the psalmist was asking God to deal with is really the custom design plan for the psalmist. That guy who wrote those words. And your struggles, your trials, your difficulties are custom designed by that same personal God for your transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. All that you go through in life is for that purpose. If you're saved. It will turn you from being selfishly addicted to your own agenda to humbly embracing his agenda. That's what your prayers are intended to do. That's what the plan of God will do. It's similar to the differences of discipline when raising children. You know, well, how come God answers that guy's prayer and not my prayer? How come that guy gets this and I don't? And back and forth we go. But think about how you raise your children if you've had more than one. Some of our children would crumble into repentance and confession with a stern look, wouldn't they? Others, you have to get a little more intense to accomplish that same thing. As it is with us and our loving Heavenly Father. God is the one who specifically and intentionally designs our afflictions to accomplish his purposes, which is becoming like Jesus. Psalm 119, we've already covered this a year or two ago, one, uh, verse 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I went my own way, did my own thing. But now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, friends, prayer is not the off-ramp from the freeway of affliction, 
but the on-ramp to understanding the heart of God and his loving plans for us. That's what prayer is. God answers prayer because he personally loves us and has designed all of our circumstances to bring about our complete joy. Not superficial stuff, not the stuff the world's offering, but the complete joy found only in Jesus Christ. This is why I've said these things to you, Jesus said, so that your joy will be full and my joy will be in you. Let's pray. Father, we many times struggle to remember these important things. We get up to our ears in difficulty and trouble and we lose sight of the things that we know about you and about our circumstances. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of these critically important truths as we walk back into our life this week, as we face the trials and challenges that we will inevitably face. Help us see them from your perspective. Help us view them as from the loving hand of a personal God who has a plan. Oh Lord, encourage our hearts. Shore us up, strengthen us, give us spiritual vitality, give us life. Help us be joyful in all things. And I pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior, who lived and died for each of us. Amen.